I'm going to invite you to go ahead and turn in your copy of God's Word, whether that's by a physical copy or, you know, clicking open the Bible app on your electronic device, and turn to the book of Exodus. Exodus chapter 15 is where we're going to be today. And if you were using one of our pew Bibles, we welcome you to use that. Of course, the words are going to be on the screen behind us. But we always ask people to follow along in a copy of God's Word. Um, we want people to see what uh, the Word says for themselves. We think it's very, very important not just to depend on someone to say, oh, that sounds like what they, they, they're talking like they, they know. Uh, they sound like they know what they're talking about. But we want them to be able to see what God's Word says to them. And uh, I'm going to invite you to turn that because we're going to be there really quickly today. Uh, as we look at the book of Exodus, we've been talking about the book of Exodus as this point in history. It's the, it's the continuing story of what God is doing in the beginning. That in the beginning you have the book of Genesis where God creates this world. And then he, he gives it this, this, this plan. But then you see the fallenness, what happens when disobedience enters the world. And, you know, you would think, well, maybe God just washes his hands, rubs, scrubs off, and he says, I'm done with all this. But no, God actually extends incredible grace by providing a rescue, providing a promise. And he does that through developing a family, uh, a lineage through Abraham and his descendants that would become the people of Israel. And the people of Israel would have descendants that would have ultimately lead to Christ, the ultimate redeemer. But between Genesis and Jesus, you have all these other 38 books of the Bible, the, 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 uh, of the Old Testament, excuse me. The Old Testament is 39 books of so Genesis, then getting to Jesus, you're at book 40. Um, so on the second book, we see how God takes this people that he is preserving, this people Israel, that have gone to Egypt to have food, to have the sources and necessities for life, but have ended up after 400 years becoming the enslaved, underprivileged people that are there. And yet God has never forgotten His promise to these people. And so He is working in the midst of this to share about His rescue. And not only to share like it's coming, but to make it possible. So we see the, the development of Moses, we see the development of of God extending His hand and working in the lives and the history of Egypt to deliver His people with a mighty and strong hand. And this ultimately leads to them going through these plagues, to them celebrating the Passover, this act of God's grace to, to provide mercy and blessing to those that trust in Him and, and go through the process of, 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 of the, the, the covering of their doorpost with blood. Uh, that, that was the, the way that God had provided in the book of Exodus in that time for the Passover, God provided an ultimate deliverance. So the people exodus out of Egypt. That's why it's called Exodus. And then you had that big moment, the big popular moment that we talked about last week, where their, their backs are against the Red Sea and, and coming on the, on the horizon is the armies of Egypt. And there's that, oh no, what are we going to do moment. And God yet provides for the people. He, he allows a way of grace for them to go through something that looked utterly impossible. God provided an ultimate way for them to walk through. And they did as they trusted Him, whether confidently or, or even maybe cowardly trusting God. You know, some people come to God and they're like, man, I need this Jesus. I'm, I'm all in. And some people are like, man, I'm, I'm scared. I don't know what this is going to look like for me. Uh, but yet nevertheless, they trust and they follow 
God provided this deliverance. So here you have, in this moment, after the, the parting of the Red Seas where the people of Israel walk through and the Egyptian army is destroyed at that moment, and right after you have this song that the people of Israel have sung, this new song they wrote just about God, His character, what He's done in, those, in these, this last year of their life, <coughs> they're speaking it. But then, now what? What does a people of over 600,000 men who all they've ever known in all of their lifetime and in all the lifetimes of their ancestors, because, you know, you really probably don't know anybody that lived 400 years ago, regardless of what they try to sell you on TV. You might see some facts about what they did, but you don't know that person. No one likes to hear that, but that's true. Well, what do you do now? I've not known anything but slavery. I've not known anything but the Egyptian culture. I don't know any place that I've ever seen right here in my geography because I've never been here before. What do we do now? And guess what they did? They complained. We've never been here before. We're hungry. This way is hard. I'm thirsty this is too difficult instead of saying wow we are just days away from these miracles within three days three days after the parting of the red sea the people are complaining and they're complaining because they know they need the lord's provision but they that uncertainty that doubt that confusion about not knowing what is next kind of wedges its way in and when it wedges its way out man wedges its way in the, the bitterness and the ugliness of our life can really come to the forefront so stand with me as we honor god in the reading of his word looking at the book of exodus by the way if you do not have a copy of the bible in a way that you can read uh, that one that's right in front of you in the pew that is yours it's a gift from us to you we 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 use it. It's what I'll be preaching out of today. And here we go. We're looking at chapter 15 uh, on page 60 in the Pew Bible in front of you, by the way. And we're going to be looking at verse 22 through 27. We're going to be looking through 15, 16, and 17. But let's just look at these verses to begin. It sets up our story. Then Moses led Israel from the Red Sea, and they went out to the wilderness of Shur. They journeyed for three days in the wilderness without finding water. They came to Marah. But they could not drink the water at Marah because it was bitter. That is why it was named Marah. The people grumbled to Moses, What are we going to drink? So he cried out to the Lord. And the Lord showed him a tree, and when he threw it into the water, the water became drinkable. The man made, the Lord made a statute and ordinance for them at Marah. And he tested them there. He said, If you will carefully obey the Lord your God, do what is right in His sight, pay attention to His commands, and keep all His statutes, I will not inflict on any illnesses on you that I inflicted on the Egyptians. For I am the Lord who heals you. Then they came to Elim, where there were twelve springs and seventy date palms, and they camped there by the water. Let's pray. Lord God, today, I ask that you help us to see you and to know you and see how you provide 
See what it means to follow you in a way that we may not have known before. But when we trust you, we know the way is secure. We know the way is uh, provided for. And that it never falls out of your plan. So help us follow after you. Even though sometimes we don't know the way, we know if we can follow you. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So, I said earlier with our kids we, that uh, every new year we kind of enter this crossroads period in our personal lives. We have this moment just by the, the switching of the calendar from one year to the next where all of a sudden we're examining things. A few years ago, obviously, uh, 19 years ago, uh, whenever the, the calendar was changing from 1999 to 2000, there was a, a lot of uncertainty. What are we going to do when all the computers break down and the world goes on to chaos? I hope you have a solid investment in, in precious metals, that you have a stockpile in a shelter, that you've built a bomb room or a panic room, and that you're ready for chaos and confusion because we've never had to live this way before. Now, obviously, you know the rest of the story that 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 did not happen. We should have probably known it was not happening in America uh, on New Year's Eve because, well, the clocks already had switched over in New Zealand almost 24 hours before it got to us. But nevertheless, uh, this was an unsettling moment. And then after that, well, what do we do now? We're in a new millennia. None of us have ever lived when there was a new millennia. We've all only known the 19s. Now we're in the 2000s. What does this mean? Are we all going to be in flying cars and all that kind of thing? What's, what's next? So this year, when we got passed on and we, and we see where we're at, we, we know that, well, the flying car thing apparently is not going to happen. Uh, we're past the dates of, of uh, Back to the Future, so it's just not going to do it. We're just going to have a hoverboard that way. We're going to have the things where people trip and fall. Um, but when it comes to this year, we still have that moment. What is next? Because sometimes we know where we've been and, and we kind of have an idea of what we're supposed to do, but we, we're still a little bit clueless on what that actually means. For us as a church, uh, you may have your personal things that you've evaluated, but for us as a church, there's some things that we're looking at and saying, all right, 2019 is our, is our 65th year as a church. We're 65 years. I know some of you are like, I think I heard this last week. Yes, yes, you did. Because I wanted to make sure that if you weren't here last week, you heard it this week. So you know where we're going in the next coming weeks, next coming years, uh, as we aim ahead. But as we switch this year, where we're, we're looking at our age at 65. Uh, at this moment, there are no more people that were here as charter members. There was no one here that was at the beginning. You realize that, right? You may have come on shortly after, but at, at the beginning installation of this church, no one that's here today was there on that moment on July 4th of, 2000, of, of 1954. But, as we get to 65, we begin saying, alright, this is where we are, this is what God has done. What's going to be different this year from the last couple of years? And if we're honest, we get scared, and we start automatically getting a little pacifying of ourselves, well, this is going to be another year like any other. I tried to do something new this last year, and, and you know, three weeks in, I don't go to the gym anymore, my diet's busted, or whatever else. And we may think that about church. It's just going to be the same old, same old, que sera, sera. But I want to challenge us as we get to 65 that it will not be long because I've been here five years and that seems like it's passed by like just nothing. It's been like crazy how fast it's gone. It will take us no time before we get to 75. What's going to be different then? What's going to be different then? 
Now, we could try to say, all right, let's take a calendar and let's pack it out and, and have all these busy schedules so we look really, really busy and active. And yet, you could be busy and active and still be treading water. Uh, or or let's, uh, let's bring in and, and do something really high, spectacular, that, that's really attractional. Let's make it, uh, the outside look like all decorated. And that'd be great, but if the inside's not healthy where we need to be, then we could draw a lot of people in, but they see where we are like, well, you're not ready for us. So what is it going to be? Well, let's be what the Bible tells us to be. We could try to add all kinds of things, and, and there's nothing wrong with church growth models. Those are healthy, those are good and helpful. But if they don't help us stay true to the compass of what Scripture has laid out, to be a church that's, that's teaching on prayer, that's focused on actually praying, not just teaching about it, um, we, that's, that's one of the weaknesses I've seen before. I've seen churches that focus so much on the study of missions and yet don't do missions. That's not a good thing to be. Uh, so let's not be a church that teaches on prayer yet is not active in prayer. That's one of the things that we talked about last week. I saw someone post it on Facebook today about being invited into prayer on a daily basis at 10.02. Why 10.02? Because of Luke 10.02, which says as we see the to look and see that the harvest is plentiful, that we would seek the Lord to send out laborers, that including us. And so that's why at 10.02, I ask people to set that on their alarm clock or, or write it in their notebook or put it on their watch or whatever it is. 10.02, to pray and, and invite people to join the church together corporately in prayer. And we want to be a church that calls upon the name of the Lord. We want to be a church that Jesus would speak about when he says, my house will be a house of prayer. That's a direction for us. I don't want people to be confused about that. What about evangelism? We, we need to reach people with the gospel. Yes. But it takes the Holy Spirit to, to, to help turn a heart. I could preach my heart out. I could be the most convincing person in the world. But unless the Holy Spirit draws a heart, that heart has never changed. They could make a head nod. They could fill out a card. But unless the Holy Spirit changes the heart, you're not saved. And so when it comes to that, we're going to have a year of involvement where we reach out and try to be People that say, yeah, in our love and our deeds and our words, we're going to communicate the gospel. We're going to seek God through prayer to do His work. And we're going to invite you to be involved. We're invite, invite you to be invested. We're going to invite you to be, see hopefully a year and maybe years of impact. Some of the ways we're going to do that, we're going to have focused seasons, focused days where we invite uh, evangelists to come in. But we're going to spend time praying and ask God to do what only He can do. You may be here today, and you may not know it, but you've been prayed for prayed for wholeheartedly because someone cares about your soul and they want God to show you who He is. Don't miss that. Lastly, we want to be a church that is make, being disciples that make disciples. This is Jesus' command to us. You may say, well, we've been doing that. Okay? That, that is true in some ways. We have. We've been trying to teach the Bible. We've been working through things. But yet, we want to see people grow. I think it's amazing, like when we ask what does the disciple do, there are people that are, that are focused on God's Word, spending time with God in prayer, and helping people to know Jesus in a better way. And yet, if we're really making disciples, we have to ask ourselves, are we doing it sufficiently? Not are we doing it wrong or right. Because I think it would be wrong for me to say, you've been doing it wrong for the last 65 years. That would be foolish, that would be arrogant. But are we doing it sufficiently? 
Are we doing it in a way that helps people get daily involved in Bible reading? Are we helping people become biblically literate that, that by the time they graduate high school, they have a pretty good understanding of the history of the Bible? Are we helping people engage in biblical discipleship where they're held accountable, where they're growing, where they're being sharpened, and where they are disciples that make disciples? That's when you know it's helpful. So this year, that's some things we're looking forward to. Now, you may wonder, why in the world did I insert that in the middle of the sermon? Because I understand what it's like to get in this moment where you're just like, I don't know what to do. I don't know what's next. Believe me, even me putting this in front of you, I'm panicked. Because that's a lot. It's so simple, but it's a lot. And it's not, it's, it's not going to be dependent on one person to get it done. It's not going to be dependent on one person's strength and ability or cleverness to have it done. Now, I'm not calling myself Moses. That's not why I inserted this here. But I see where we can get so paralyzed. And as we've been naturally going through the book of Exodus and we just ended up on the calendar date for this year, I wanted to tell you about this plan. But the people of Israel, they had been told to plan that God is going to free you. God is going to take you as His own possession. God is going to draw you as worshipers to Him. God is going to give you a promised land. God is going to be with you in presence and guide you. God is going to make you a nation that is distinctive from all the other peoples. God is going to show His glory in a way that it will be a a declarative mission statement from the people of Israel to the peoples of the world. That was the plan. But in the little things that they get caught up with, thirsty i'm hungry me 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 they forgot about him 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 so what happened what what is what are we to look at here well i've been a fan of youtube here recently that just shows the generation i'm in i'm like the end of generation x and the beginning of the millennial whatever you believe about that that's for your opinion but I love the tutorials. If I want to know how to fix something, that's generally the way, place I go. Because I'm too embarrassed to ask somebody that I, that I know knows that I won't go to them and ask them how to do it. I'll just go online so it feels, um, well, I can hide behind the YouTube video. No one has to know I'm an idiot, you know? And so I'll go there for the tutorials. And so today, as we go into the Bible, I want you to present these cases as a tutorial video. Pretend like you're there. Imagine what it's like to be there. That's why the Bible has preserved this for us. That it would be instruction for us. It would set the example for us. That's what 1 Corinthians chapter 10 tells us. That these things happen so that they serve as an instruction, an example for us, and a warning. So case study A, we've already read it. The bitter water incident. Case study A that's presented to us with the Israelites facing the wilderness. What's going on here? They get to this place, they've been three days without water. Now, at this point, we don't know exactly how long, but it's been three days since the Red Sea. At this point, they've traveled out of the major area of the Nile River Valley. They've come to the area of the Red Sea. They've crossed over what we would say is modern day around the Suez Canal, a very barren and arid place where the only water that's on the coast is salt water, so it's not viable for living. And they're in the desert and they're looking for sources. And after about three days, they come to realization, we're running out. They had supplies leaving Israel, leaving Egypt. They had some food for the Passover. They had packed everything up as quick as they could, and they were on their way. 
But at this point, the supplies are running low. Things are looking thin. And, and when things look thin, we always like, oh no, heart palpitations get there. We get panicked. What's, what's next? And we get worrisome. And that worrisome can grind into being a little bit bitter in our people. And here they just end up in a place where there's bitter water. I think there's an example here of God providing healing, not only for the water, but for the lives. So they find this moment, and as they complain to Moses, and their complaint as simple as, what are we going to drink? Come on, take care of me. And it was Moses' job. He was a shepherd. It wasn't his job to abandon his people. So what does he do? Well, he can't just speak and there's water. But he can talk to the person that can bring it. And as they found this pool, but it's bitter water, it's not viable water, if you will. We don't know exactly what bitter meant, if it stank, if it was putrid. It may have been that they noticed that there was things in the water that shouldn't be there. If you're in survival mode and you go to a place where there's maybe a dead creature in the water, you don't drink that water. We don't know exactly what it is, but maybe they found it and it's like, can't drink it though. So what do they do? They cry out to Moses, and Moses goes to the only place he knows to go. He goes to God in prayer. Moses was like, being honest, I don't have the answer here. But God had it all along. He goes to God in prayer, and and God points out a tree. Cut down the tree. Here's 80-year-old Moses. All right, I'm hacking down the tree. And he's out there, and he does what God tells him. I think it's kind of funny to think of the 80-year-old swinging an axe, but I'm not questioning any 80-year-old because I believe some 80-year-olds can swing an axe pretty well. Probably a lot better than I can at times. But cuts it down, throws it in the water, and the water is healed. All by the direction and obedience. This moment that was unclear, was murky, was possibly even poisonous. God provided healing to it. And, and God gives them this declaration that they could seek Him. This was an example they could seek Him, but they also needed to trust and obey his direction to listen to him his commands that this is why it's there now i don't want you to get this confused god had already rescued his people god had already made himself known he'd already demonstrated grace he'd already handed out salvation and rescue to the people of israel he wasn't saying all right you need to do all these things before i rescue no he was saying i've already rescued now i want you to live all you've ever known is slavery now i want you to live free but free as worshipers and followers of me. I'm the one that provides for you. And this is what happened. The Lord healed. Case study B. Let's look at another tutorial. And this is the area of the manna. That's a spiritual word, manna. You don't talk about manna very often unless you're kind of making a joke and you speak Christianese outside the church. You know, like we talk about, uh, I don't know, bacon is like manna or something, but it's not. Uh, manna is manna and manna means well what is it that's a weird thing too but here we are in this moment this is chapter 16 that after they've gotten their their uh their beverages their their thirst well not long after that they move and camp on and move forward they leave elam a place after mar where they found lots of date trees and lots of springs but now they're on their way down to the wilderness of sin and uh, not sin, like the place where they're going to die of sin, but Sinai sin. It's like the name of a place, the peninsula there. And uh, in the middle of that, well, the food supplies start running low. They got the water, but now the food supplies are running low. So they begin complaining. Verse 3 of chapter 16, this is what's ridiculous. Actually, let's look at verse 2. 
The entire Israelite community grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. The Israelites said to them, If only we had died by the Lord's hand in the land of Egypt when we sat by pots of meat and ate all the bread we wanted. Instead, you brought us in this wilderness to make this whole assembly die of hunger. Now, at this point, after they had camped, this is about 45 days out from the Red Sea. 45 days out of deliverance since God had rescued them from Egypt. And here they're now hungry. We don't have enough meat. Well, all of our food, these dates that we had from the trees and every, all this bread that we brought out of the desert, it's all gone now. Now, now what? We're starving. And they're complaining, it's this guy Moses' fault. Why do we ever follow him? Man, if we just died with all these Egyptians in Israel, I mean, in Egypt, that would have been better. At least we would have died with our bellies full. Me, me, me. What does God do? He provides. It's amazing. In the middle of grumbling and some ingrates who are just complaining all the time, woe is me. God extends incredible grace. And He does do so through providing manna. The Bible tells us some things about manna. It tells us first it was abnormal. It wasn't something that you would find. It wasn't like, oh, I just went to the store and there's naturally bread on the shelves. That wasn't the deal. It's like in the morning dew, after this, this miraculous moment, for 40 years, there would be this manna. And it ceased to exist after 40 years. It was no longer provided from heaven. It was a supernatural, abnormal provision of God. It wasn't something that just naturally found itself out there. But it showed it came from God's hand. That God does things beyond our natural scope. Beyond our natural investigation at times. Now, He doesn't always do that. But there are times where you're just you're so perplexed and, and befuddled that, wow, God, You would make something that I just absolutely declared to be an impossibility a possibility. It's abnormal. But God does things that far exceed our concepts. Because we only see in a small frame of reference, a small frame of time, and a small amount of information that we know. But God contains all power, all information. And He exists beyond time. But he works within time. It was an abnormal provision that they had from God. It was different. It was distinct. It was tasty. And not only was it abnormal, it was ample. It was sufficient for them that they, whatever they collected, it was enough to fill them. It, 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 it was, it was, it was good and delicious and, 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 and provided for their need. It wasn't like it was just some junk that left you wanting more. I'm not going to call this junk, but I'll, I'll put the warning out. If you ever get addicted to sweet tea, it's, sweet iced tea is delicious. It is absolutely delicious. But here's the problem with it. It's not filling. I mean, it makes you want more and more and more. It's not really ample. It's, it's great and enticing, but it's not really ample. Here this provided for them. So the person that gathered little never had too little. The person who gathered much never had too much except whenever they got greedy. Because not only was this ample, it's an anointed bread. It had a special purpose. God even said to take a little pot and keep some inside His, his ark, inside of His, his precious uh, tent, where His presence would dwell. It's to say it would be a, a, a physical 
way to see God's significant provision on the people. But even though this was an ample provision, it was anointed and, and God had a special time. He says, it's going to be just enough for that day. It's going to be your daily bread. So don't try to keep some for the next day because if you do, it's going to stink. It's going to have maggots. It's going to turn. It's just going to be putrid. It's not going to be good. You're inviting bitterness back into your life. And so here he provides for this. He says this is a special bread. But it was anointed and it was also abnormal because there was one day that it was provided that you were required to Collect double. And if you collected double for the next day, it would not turn on that day alone. And that was good because on that day alone, there also was not going to be any manna. Once again, it shows the supernatural ability that, that God didn't just say, oh, I'm just going to do this blanket. All right, let me set this on default for the next 40 years. It's like every six days, then there was a seventh day where there was none, and then it came again on the, the first day of the week. Why? Because God wanted His people to rest and trust in His provision even on the Sabbath. So what does this all tell us? Is that it tells us it was abnormal, it was ample, it was anointed, but it also helped it had an element of sanctifying the people. This is what it looks like to daily lean on Jesus and his provision. To lean on the Lord. It's an apprenticeship that taught them what it means to follow after him. So that's the sec the second case study. Let's look at case studies C. Uh, and that is the water from the rock. So they've got the the bread, the manna. They've got the, the water that was healed at, at Mara. Oh, by the way, there was one more thing that happened with the whole manna incident. There was one moment where God sent so much meat and quail. Um, how many of you ever tried to hunt quail? Anybody in here? Any quail hunters or pheasant hunters or anything like that? All right. Um, they're kind of tricky. You got to kind of get them while they're going the right way. But apparently God in his supernatural ability, he brought so much quail that all you had to do was go, here, bird. Here, squawk. Here, here's a thigh bone. You know, it was like, it was there. Imagine that. That's like how much was just dumped out. I was like, <laughs> you think about pots of meat in Egypt. Remember, there's our, there's your birds. How about that for you? I love you. <laughs> Some of you may have had that discussion with your kids before. Um, so here you go. The second, the third case study is what we see: the water from the rock. At this point. They know God can heal water, and they know God can provide them food. But they end up in a place that's like just sheer granite bluffs. I mean, it is desolate. It is barren. There is nothing there. It is arid. It is just so dry. And the terrain is so rugged. And there's just no streams. There's nothing to be found. No oasis. They've, they've scouted out. There's nothing to be found. And so they go to Moses, and they begin complaining again. And they're, they're, they're in chapter 17. And there was no water for the people. And he says, give us water to drink. And Moses says, why are you complaining to me? And why are you testing the Lord? Once again, do what I did. Go to God. He's provided everything you've needed so far. And yet you keep coming to me. And you keep testing Him. And they begin saying, why did you ever bring us up from Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? Moses cried out to the God because he said, what am I doing with these people? In a little while, they're going to try to stone me. They're going to try to kill me. For you're leading me in this way. God told him the provision to go up ahead of them and to this certain place, to this certain rock, and take the, the staff that he had delivered them with, the same staff that he had stretched out in the, the Red Sea and parted at God's hand and command. And he said, just tap, strike the rock, and water's going to flow. And he does it. And what do you know? There comes the gushing of water. 
a stream for the people. But in this moment, you see what happens when people are left to their own without, without a certainty, without a grounding trust in God. They begin to be arrogant. They begin to be doubtful. They begin to be inquisitive beyond their area. What they end up doing is they demand God's provision. God, I demand you to work on my terms and my way because my way is far superior than you who holds the cosmos and speaks them into existence. God, I, I question if you can protect us. We're going to a place and, and it's desolate and, and then we're going to go among people that are much bigger than us, that are trained. They, they haven't been slaves. They've been warriors. They've been conquering people. We're going to go over there. I'm questioning your protection. And then they go to the place where they're doubting God's presence. Is he even with us? I'm not even thinking about him. I'm going to Moses. and It's this place of just terrible, terrible failure. You see, when we look at chapters, the end of 15 and 16 and 17, what we end up seeing is what you shouldn't do. It gives us a whole lot of those warning videos. These are the the, the, uh, messages. These are those fail moments. This is where they did not pass the test. That they faced the difficulties of the wilderness and they began questioning and they began grumbling and they distanced themselves from following the way. It should make no it should not be a surprise to us that later on, as Moses goes up to the get the Ten Commandments, that these same people would end up distancing themselves from following God's commands. So what do we do with a lesson like that? If all we have is failure placed in front of us like Well, these are people that saw the miraculous hands of God and they are messed up in what they're doing. Of course, we look at back with hindsight 2020 and we think, how could they be so whatever we want to fill in the blank with? But if they did it, a people that I would venture to say had seen many more visible acts of God on display, supernatural provision in a way that I'll just be honest, I have not known in my life. I've known it from the Scripture. But I have not woken up, walked out to my door, and God says, oh, there's some manna for you. I have not went to the pool and, and, and been like, oh, man, I don't want to walk all around. And God said, there on the water. I've not seen that. I've not had someone that was in a role of leadership that was persecuting where God says, well, let me just throw some plagues on that person. But they did. And if they fail, what are we to do? It leaves us with that moment of conundrum, right? That moment of uneasiness. Well, let's look at another tutorial session because if we looked at this alone, it would be insufficient. It would be incomplete. What we need to do is to look at the one who succeeded. The one who was able to face the wilderness and yet overcome. And that is Jesus. The Bible paints this picture of the New Testament giving us Jesus who went for 40 days. He didn't go 40 years, but 40 days alone in the wilderness. And what happened when he was faced with the temptation of hunger? When he was faced with the temptation of, of trying to demand God's work on his own? When he was faced with the area of doubting God's direction? These temptations that were provided at the hand of the devil himself who is not omnipresent, who is not everywhere. Yes, he is a real enemy. Yes, the Bible speaks about that enemy. But let's not give him credit that he is not due. But here, Jesus is tempted by the devil himself. And he overcomes. Because he took what God had provided in his word 
and spoken and he held it dear and knew that if he trusted the Lord, the Lord is the one who heals, who provides, who leads. So when facing the test of the wilderness, Jesus succeeds and overcomes and gives us that one who, while we can't look to Israel, we can't look to our own stuff, we can look to him. When we look at the next exhibit of, of his life, another case study, if you will, we see that Jesus, once again, aligned himself with this moment. In every book of the, every gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we see one miracle that is held in all four gospels. So significant, so connected to Israel's history and the work of what God had been doing. You know what that was? The feeding of the 5,000. Jesus took five loaves and two fishes and he multiplied it enough to feed over 5,000 men plus their families. And not only to feed them, but to have baskets left over. And when people saw that, man, something kind of, oh, it's caught my attention. God had provided us bread once. This must be the Messiah. This must be the king. But Jesus knew people were going to misuse that and try to make him king without him going and glorifying his ultimate purpose on the cross. And he withdrew. But nevertheless, Jesus let it be known that indeed, he is the supplier of the bread of life. God cut off, cut off the sources of manna back in the desert after 40 years in the wilderness. But God does not cut off the source of the bread of life who is Jesus, the one who fills us, who, who does something supernatural, who does something sufficient, who does something anointed, and who teaches us. This is what Jesus does. This is what Jesus supplies. We also see Jesus providing that means of salvation and living water. 1 Corinthians 10, it says that He, Jesus, is the rock that was struck to bring about our salvation. That just as the water helped save lives for the people of Israel in the wilderness, Jesus was struck on the cross so that, that water of life that, that saves us would be made available to us. It would come from Him. So we need that. Because if we look at the study of Israelites alone, yeah, it can be challenging to say, all right, got to learn from that. But still we're left in, but, but what do I do? I can learn not to do that, but I don't know what to do instead of that. But the Bible says, I'll show you. Here is Jesus. Follow Him who succeeds where we fail. Follow Him who supplies where we are without. Follow Him who saves when we are in need of life. It teaches us these things. So now what are we to do? Wisdom tells us that when we see failure, we're reminded right, these are the things I should not do. When we see success, we're taught these are the things I should do and kind of learn from those. So if we're given that glimpse, then what's the next tutorial session for us? What are we to learn now? Because the Israelites faced the wilderness and they failed. Jesus faced it. He succeeded. The Bible tells us that all of us, because of the sin of the world, we're going to face a wilderness. We're not promised as followers of Jesus, as people who call ourselves Christians, we're not promised all sunny days. We're not promised a world where everything will be fat and happy on the table. We're not. We're going to be able, have to face suffering. Now, some of us will be like, well, all right, let's mount a campaign. We can get past that. We don't need to suffer. Well, some of us will say, oh, if we could just all get along and, and sing Kumbaya, we won't need to have problem and pain. Uh, if we, or we'll say if we have the right leadership and we can go to them and, and never have to complain about who's in the office, then that's the thing. No, no, that is not the answer. All of those things fail. We must look to Jesus 
And if we're going to do this with wisdom from a biblical perspective, there's only two wise decisions. First, we have to trust this Jesus for our daily needs. We have to trust Him for our daily needs. And not to be so fixated on the daily. I think so many of us are so fixated on the daily that we don't live for eternity. But here's the thing, if we end up living for eternity, that will insert itself in the daily. But we can certainly try to just focus ourselves on the daily and miss out on eternity. But it doesn't happen the other way around. Because we live for the eternal, man, it, it changes our perspective. And just as we talked about a few weeks ago, where Jesus had said in the Sermon on the Mount, one of the most significant, largest portions of writing that Jesus had on a one topic in the Sermon on the Mount is that area of worrying and provision and trusting God. And his advice, his not his advice, his command is this. Seek first the kingdom of God and all its righteousness. And all these things shall be added unto you. So we've got to trust God for the daily needs. I know some of you have lean, suffering days. My heart goes out for you, and if there's a way we can help you as a church, but I want to tell you, much more greater than a dependence on another person, another place, another organization. Jesus sees you. Trust in Him. Seek His face. And see His provision. But the Bible is not just about our provision for daily needs. It's not just about food to eat, things to drink, things to wear. The Bible tells us this, the main thing that's there is not only trusting God for our daily needs, but we've got to realize that God is there for the deepest need. God was there for the people of Israel because He had made a promise that out of them would come a Savior. That that promise would lead to a provision that would show His eternal purpose of all this creation that we live in today. And that would be through Jesus. That's why He saved. That's why He provided. That's why He cared. And today, His purpose still remains. That yes, He's already provided Jesus, but He calls the church to be His manifest instrument. And that means His chosen, His decisive instrument to make known the Gospel to the world. And so surely, if that is His purpose and His promise to the church, we can look to Him and say, God, I know You will take care of our deepest needs. That first deepest need being salvation. One to rescue from the enslavery and the death and the hell and the curse of sin. We need that above any other. And God who is holy, that is His character, that is who He is, He is distinctive unlike any other. He looks on mankind's offensive sin with compassion. He says, I created them in My image. I will provide for them. I will love them and I will show them the way. And I will show them. I'll be that way. I myself will be the Word that took on flesh to dwell among them, to be the presence among them, but to go to the cross for them. That's the message of the cross. He says, I am willing to be stricken so that you may be saved. I am the promise that will be your provision. You may be thinking, that's heavy, what do I do with that? I'm confused. The Bible says, there's a personal responsibility to each and every one of us. It says that to 
everyone who believes in Jesus, He, He alone gives them the right to become children of God, even to those who receive His name. That you could be called a child of God. The Bible tells us that whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. It says, when you call out to me, I'm, I have extended a gift out to you, but whenever you call it out to me, I will not withhold that gift from you. It's a gift that you didn't deserve. If you look back on the total of your life, you can't say, well, I think the scales weigh in my favor. No, all of us sin and fall short of the glory of God. Every single one of us. Not one in this room. And yet God does grace to us. It's amazing. The Bible tells us that in that gift is something of eternal urgency. It transforms your eternal life, but it transforms also your life here and now. In other words, Jesus says, look to me. I will care for your deepest need. And I will care for your daily need. Because I am the Lord who provides. And I want you to know, I never leave or forsake those who follow after me. Today, you may be in this place You may be wondering, what am I to do? I've come to this crossroad point, it's a new year, or I've come to this new season of my life, or or maybe I'm just right here, and now I'm faced with the heaviness of this news, and what am I to do with that? Trust the Lord. He will show you the direction you're to go. He will show you to follow after Him. and He will care for your deepest need. And then, as you follow Him, as He promised the people at Mara to learn His statutes, to follow His commands, He will show you, I'm the one who provides and heals even in the daily needs. Follow the Lord. He is the provider. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I don't know what you're going to do in this moment. I know what I hope and what I always seek to happen. But that's me. That's just me being blunt and honest. You, you know what that's like. because you, you see me and you know me more than anybody else. But God, what I want more than anything, more than my plan, more than my way, I want you to have yours. So Jesus, in this moment, would you do the work that only you can do? Would you speak the way that only you can speak? And Would you lead people, whether they've known you for a long time, or maybe this is really the first time they've ever heard clearly who you are, would you lead them to follow after you? In this moment of response, Lord, have your way. In Jesus' name, amen.